I think it's on now, right? Testing, one, two, three. All right. All right, let's start over again. Welcome, everybody, to Lighthouse Bible Church today. Let's begin right now by entering into prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you, Father, that you gave him to us, and he, God in the flesh went to the cross and died for our sins, was buried, and then three, on the third day you raised him from the dead. And whoever believes in your Son, Jesus Christ, as our Savior, will never perish, but has eternal life. And Father, today we also ask for your guidance and direction through the Spirit as we continue to learn and receive from the book of 1 Corinthians. We also pray for the needs of the saints this morning. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand and join us. Good morning again, everybody. This is the first Sunday of the month, and that means we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper together at the end of service today. Our missionary organization this month is uh, Village Ministries International, and their website is www.villageministries.org. They're non-denominational. They're in Yukon, Oklahoma. They're a Christian ministry. As so many of the uh, missionary organizations that we support um, do, they take the gospel and the word of God to remote areas that are not easily exposed to missionary activity. They uh, have a dual strategy in their outreach. The first one is conducting Bible, vacation Bible schools and young adult and baseball camps. Sounds like fun. Maybe I'll go join these guys. Uh, these, are, these are done and performed in various places throughout the world. They then um, enlist local pastors to follow up with the families. They also distribute gospel coins. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they're pretty cool. They're about this big. They have, usually have John 3.16 on it. Um, question on the, end, on the back, where will you spend eternity? Um, so you can go out. If you want some, you can go on their website and, and you can buy them. Maybe they're free. I think they're free. In any event, their second aspect is to train up rural pastors so that they can teach others in these locations. They also partner with missionaries, and they have conferences that are designed to bring in rural pastors to a city and conduct training seminars, morning, noon, and night. And then they go forward and teach the Word of God. And, and in these, this dual strategy, they also have short-term mission teams to carry it out, encouraging local ministry in that area and also providing an opportunity for those who have a heart for sharing the gospel and teaching God's word to get involved. They are committed to equipping the saints for the work of service to build up the body of Christ. And here are some of the countries they've worked in, India, Nigeria, the Philippines, Central America, Indonesia, and Mongolia. So they've been all around the world, again, places that are not easily exposed to missionary activity. And that's their website in small print for you young people, www.villageministries.org. Um, as many of you know, uh, Cheryl Jarvis's son, Ian, died a little over a week ago. There will be a memorial service for Ian on Tuesday, this Tuesday, June 4th, <clears throat> excuse me, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon at Advent Church in Lake Worth. I'll explain where, why it's there in a second. And the address, street address is 2116 Lantana Road. 
in case any of you have the opportunity to come join us at that time. The reason that it's in this church is because Ian had a group of friends, um, and those friends really weren't exposed to the gospel. And so, in honor of her son, she wants to have it in a location where they can all get to easily so they can hear the gospel. So that's why it's there. And I'd um, love to have you join us if you're able to. This Tuesday, 5 o'clock, at Advent Church in Lake Worth, 2116 Lantana Road. It's off exit 61 on 95 North if you want to get a sense of how far away it is. But I know, didn't know that. I had to look it up. In any event, um, please join us if you can. Cheryl's had a lot of loss in her life. I don't know if you remember, but a couple of years ago she lost her husband, now her son. So that's a lot to go through. So keep her in prayer in any event. Also, next Sunday we're going to have our monthly outreach meeting. After service, I promise it won't last more than 20 minutes. I know that, you know, we just, people have things to do and so forth. But again, our outreach next Sunday after service, 20 minutes. All right, the title of today's message comes from the fifth chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. You can turn there now. We're going to start in verse 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to go through the whole chapter today, verses 1 through 13, because it is a unit and it's uh, all really, there's one message throughout that passage. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 13. And again, the title comes from the 13th verse. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. I'll read it now, and then we'll look at this. We're gonna, first thing we're going to do after we read through this is make sure we have the right mindset about this material. And then we'll go through it verse by verse. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, the unbelieving world, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant. You have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, Paul, on my part, though absent in body, he's not with them now, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I didn't leave out, I have decided, the Greek leaves it out. So that's not in the original language, so that's why I didn't say it. We'll see more about that. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, And I with you in spirit notice with the power of our Lord Jesus to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. That just means that all who believe in Jesus Christ have been declared righteous by God. They're separated. They're set apart. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Purity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean 
with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or the slenders or with the idolaters in the world, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. What What am I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Okay, as I guess you're already picking up, today we are beginning to encounter some difficult subjects, one in particular. And in so doing, we need to adopt the proper frame of mind about it. And the proper frame of mind comes from particularly the books that are ahead of 1 Corinthians, in particular, in particular, the book of Romans. Remember, Romans are the fundamentals of what it means to be a Christian. But the right frame of mind about this material, about being called to remove the wicked man from among ourselves and to understand that we are not to associate with any so-called brother who has these different lifestyles, we should not approach this in fear. What do I mean by that? Oh, I'm afraid we haven't done that right, or I'm afraid this may have been me. None of that. Why? Because the perfect love, God's love for us, casts out fear. And we should be in the frame of mind of God's love, not our fear. Not guilt. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But what we should be realizing as we go through this material in chapter 5 is that we're members one of the other. We're all together in one body. What happens to one happens to all. When one member suffers, all members suffer. We are one family of God. And it is with this mindset that we are all members of one another, that if something happens to one, it happens to all, that God loves us as his family, and that his church has been established on the blood of Christ, when we see it that way, it all becomes obvious with this, this, letter, or this chapter in the letter of 1 Corinthians is telling us. Now on the surface, it may seem to be dealing with sins and arrogance and discipline. And that's certainly the situation we see at the ground level. If we look at on the level of how people live their earthly lives, that's here. He's, he's chastising them for their arrogance and their boasting. He is calling for them to not, not associate with people with these um, lifestyles. So that's there, but it's on the ground level. Why do I say that? Because actually, 1 Corinthians is about much more than just what's on the ground level. Actually, 1 Corinthians is about love. It's interesting that uh, in the 13th chapter, we have a whole chapter on love. Right smack dab in the midst of all of these problems and difficulties that are going on within the congregation. It's really, and we're going to see this today in chapter 5, which in some respects is the most challenging chapter in the whole letter of 1 Corinthians. Especially the way the church is today, where if, if churches are doing any, what, what they call it church discipline, I don't, you know, whatever, but when they do it, they always focus on one particular lifestyle, or maybe two. But we're going to see today that there are many others that fall into the same category. But all of that we should see in terms of the fact that the Father loves the church, the assembly, the body of His Son, Jesus Christ, and He's not going to let anything destroy it. If, you know, obviously, it sometimes happens, but His, his, his work, his, what He's established, His principles are designed not to allow anything or anybody to destroy the assembly, the church. 
Please turn now to Romans chapter 8, verse 35. It's about the love of the Father, how much he loves the church, the body of his Son. Look at Romans 8, verse 35. I know a lot of you are familiar with this passage. But the fact is that when, when I am dealing with some heavy stuff, now you've got to remember that you're hearing this message today. I've been dealing with it all week. All right? And it's, it's pretty heavy, actually. Um, but when I see that, and when I, when I start to see myself going in the wrong direction with it, the fear direction, so forth, then I realize that I have to go somewhere where I'm built up again to understand who are we really. Let's start there and bring that with us into chapter 5. And so there's no better place to do that than the 8th chapter of Romans, and in particular verses 35 to 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, whatever those things are, in everything that we face in life, together, as members of the body of Christ, as saints, by calling as those who have been declared righteous by God the Father. In all of the things that we go through, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. And let me just say that there, when we read God's Word, don't take the attitude that, wow, we have to do it all right right now or there's something wrong with us. There's nothing wrong. Otherwise, why would there be so much in the Bible about growing? Growing, what does that mean? That means in the past you may not have grasped this, or you may not have had the, the courage or the integrity to do this. But now that you grow, when you start to grow, then you can start to do things better in the Christian way of life. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's designed to do that. But again, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. Verse 37, through him who loved us. There it is again. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that includes the subject we're going to look at today in terms of whether whether or not we've failed or succeeded in that area. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. Everything ought to be looked at through this lens. The love that God has for the church. We've seen this already in 1 Corinthians. You know, after all, why are divisions so evil? Why did Paul spend four chapters dealing and chastising with the church about the divisions and the rivalries within the church? It's real simple. They break apart congregations. When you have cliques and rivalries and divisions in the church, that creates opportunity for the whole church to be broken apart, and God doesn't want that. The Lord loves the church. He won't stand by and see it broken up. Why will God destroy any man who destroys the temple? Because he loves the church so much as a vessel of his grace. Why in this chapter remove the wicked man from among ourselves? The reason is, is that just a little wickedness can ruin the entire congregation. That's why he uses the analogy of the leaven and the bread, leaven and the lump. Just a little wickedness, if not dealt with, can ruin the entire congregation. Again, think of the body. We are one body, right? If there's something going wrong with one body part, it's going to affect the whole body. I've often used the analogy of a hangnail, which is kind of a silly one. But, you know, you have a little hangnail and you're in pain and then all of a sudden 
you know, you can't function, right? Especially guys. You know, women have a higher tolerance for pain. They tell me, although I don't know if that's really true. So a little bit of wickedness can ruin an entire congregation. That's why we're family. God the Father will take swift action to prevent anything or anyone from hurting his family. And part of that is to teach the congregation that we are to remove the wicked one from among ourselves. Why? Because that can ruin things. The whole family can be hurt by that. And the the more we think of ourselves as family, the more obvious and easy these remedies are for us to implement, for us to do. Because after all, if this were going on in our personal family, we would do something about it. If these lifestyles were happening in our family, we would address them, hopefully, especially the ones that are most destructive to people. We wouldn't just sit by and let it ruin the whole family, I hope. Anybody who's responsible would never do that. So that's the mindset. We're family. God the Father wants to see us thrive as a family. We're his family. And he has a plan to take action to prevent anyone or anything from hurting his family. So, if one day we need to remove a wicked person from among ourselves here at Lighthouse Bible Church, let's do it as one family gathered together, realizing that this particular person is ruining our family life. That's the mindset. Okay, with that, let's now work through our passage a couple of verses at a time. 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. Yeah, go back to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. All right. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. An immorality of such a kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. You've become arrogant and you have not mourned instead. So that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. That didn't happen because they became arrogant rather than mourn about what was going on in their congregation. We see right away that Paul's highest concern is for the congregation and not so much for the immoral man. Highest concern is for the congregation. He mentions what was going on, but then he turns to the congregation. That's who he addresses. He doesn't address the wicked man in this letter. He addresses the congregation. That's who he's upset with. That's who he's concerned with. Notice, he says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. He's concerned with the congregation. He is upset that there is immorality among you. That's what his concern is. In in fact, he'll say later on on in this chapter that I'm not going to judge the people outside the church. The issue is what's going on inside. He's furious that you, members of the church, have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. When he briefly refers to the man, he calls him someone or the one. Very generic, not, not named in this case. Very simply, someone or the one. Now, we'll see more about this later. But sometimes you have to notice what's not said about somebody. Or about something. What's not said. In this case, please note what Paul does not say about this one. He does not call him a brother in Christ. He doesn't call him a saint. He just says the one. Someone. Very generic. 
So please note that. We're going to see more of this as we go through it. In any event, all right, let's get to the juicy part, which I know you're all waiting for. Someone has his father's wife. Someone has his father's wife. I want to just set this right away, but dispel any rumors. This does not mean his mother. It doesn't mean his mother. His father's wife, in this case, is not his mother. Okay? So put that aside. Here's why we know that. If it had been his own mother, Paul would have said so. Because as bad as this is, that would have been even more wicked. So he would have said it. And it's not his mother. In fact, it's another wife that the father had. We don't know the circumstances. Perhaps his first wife, this man's mother, had died. We don't know. Maybe they had been divorced. We're not told anything about that, though. It could also have been the case that the father had divorced this wife. Or maybe the father had died. We don't know any of that. We're not given the details. We'll say this, though. Since this is a shocking case of immorality, the father was probably still alive, and he probably was still married to this woman. That would increase the shock factor, would it not? And I think that that's pretty, pretty uh, well you know, established that this is probably the case, that he was probably alive and still married to this woman. And, it, and in verse 2, we get the summary, really, statement for the whole chapter. Let's read it together again. You, the focus is on the congregation, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Notice again that the, that the onus is on the congregation. He, he, he is spending more time telling the congregation where they've dropped the ball than he is dealing with the man who committed this act. That's significant. Why? Because the issue here is God the Father's love for the body, for the family. And if things are going wrong with the family, that's what he addresses. All right. He was very disturbed by the fact that they had become arrogant. This is in their midst. They had become arrogant. They didn't mourn, which is what they should have done, which is what we should do. If we have this going on in our congregation at any point, we should mourn about it. We should be sad about it. We should be upset about it. We shouldn't laugh it off and be arrogant and think we're so liberated that we'll just allow it to go on. You know, We're so compassionate that we're just going to allow this person and you know, give them love. That's not what the Bible says. It's not what the Bible says. They should have been saddened by this outrageous behavior in their midst. But instead, they were basically laughing about it, laughing it off. Remember, they considered themselves to be kings, right? Well, what do kings do? They make up their own rules about the, about the kingdom. And if they want to laugh at a certain sin, they do. A lot of, in history, a lot of the kings have committed the most horrible kind of acts and, and so forth. They thought that they were full, remember? They were rich. They were better than everybody else. And they, they thought they were clever and wise, remember, and crafty. They figured they could pull this off. They could do as they pleased. They were superior to others so that they were above common standards of morality. Please turn, though, to Luke chapter 6. Hold your place in 1 Corinthians, but turn to Luke chapter 6, verse 24. Luke 6, 24. They should not have been arrogant. They should have mourned. They shouldn't have laughed about it. They were not superior to others when it came right down to it. They were not above common standards of morality. There are some Christians who think that now that we're free, 
Let's just sin all that we want. Now that it's grace, well, it doesn't matter anymore. Well, it does matter anymore. As a matter of fact, I've said this before, some, some Christians say, well, you know, when Christians sin, it's different. You know, it is different. It's far worse when Christians sin, actually. Why? Because we've been set free from sin. Our freedom is from that. Why would the dog return to its vomit, right? Peter puts it that way. Why would you be rescued from a flaming building that was about to burn you to death, and then once you're outside and breathing again, you're going to run right back into the burning building? It doesn't make any sense. But they thought they were superior, that the standards of morality that everybody else held, including in some cases the unbelievers, because they do have a standard of morality. When you think of it, they call it honor among thieves, or just people that follow the law whether it be the Mosaic law or more likely the law of the land, they consider that moral. All right? So even, even the standards of the unbeliever would say, for example, that one man should not be sleeping with his father's wife. That would be obvious to anybody on the street. And yet they thought they were above any of these standards of morality. Look at Luke 6, 24 to 26. How Jesus Christ dealt with people who were thinking they were so rich and so full and able to laugh off things. Look, Luke six twenty four. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. And especially, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. The connection between laughing and mourning. And where you should be, you know, in a certain situation, like, for example, when the, when the king is going to be crucified, Right? You should mourn and weep about that. Yet so many in that time, the Jews in that time, were, were laughing and insulting the Lord, for example. But here in Corinth, they should have been mourning about the fact that this behavior was going on, and instead they were arrogant about it. They just laughed it off. And then finally in verse 26, one of the big issues, remember we saw, let no one boast in man. Remember that was one of the big principles in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Woe to you, when all men speak well of you. That's what the Corinthians wanted. They wanted everybody to speak well of them. What does Jesus say about that attitude? Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. And if I could add, that never changes. That even today, that be careful about the, when, when the world is really building up and promoting a ministry or a, or a leader in the ministry and so forth, be careful. Because when all men speak well, and that means the unbelievers are speaking well of how a church is operating, that's a big problem. We're supposed to be confronting the world, right? We are supposed to be persecuted by the world for our stand on the, on the word of God and Jesus Christ and his cross and his blood and his resurrection. So this principle never changes. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. All right. They should have mourned the fact that this man was in their midst. They should have prayed, rather than laugh it off and be arrogant and think, wow, we're so liberated, we're so informed, we're so free, we're so rich, we're kings, and they laughed it off. They should have been mourning. And they should furthermore have prayed to the Lord, that this one might be removed from them. You see, that's the first step. The first step is to want it, want to understand how dangerous it is, and to pray about it, all right? And then go to the person and confront them with it. 
and then go to them again and confront them with it. And only after that will we, go, will we take the drastic step of having them removed. All right? So that's what he's saying. Please pray about this. But they didn't. They didn't. They were arrogant. All right, please go back to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 5, now in verse 3 as we continue. 1 Corinthians 5, 3. He goes on. He now talks about his apostleship, which holds even when he's not there. See, that was the mistake they made. They thought, you know, when he's not here, we're free to do what we want. When he comes, well, we're gonna have to, he's going to have to deal with us, and hopefully he'll be gentle with us. But he won't. He came with a rod. He will come with a rod as well as the spirit of love and gentleness. And as we saw last week, the congregation gets to choose which of those he comes to them with. Being arrogant and being disobedient calls for the rod when he comes. Being humble and mourning and prayerful and not boasting in men, that's where they can, they're ready for the spirit of love and gentleness. In any event, 1 Corinthians 5.3. For I, Paul, on my part, though absent in body, I'm not there with you now, but present in spirit. I am still your father in Christ. I'm still the apostle. That doesn't change when I'm not there physically. I've already judged him who has so committed this. As though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, how are we to do this? When we're assembled, meaning all of us, and what? With the power of our Lord Jesus. What are we to do? To deliver such a one, not what we are. No, that, what, what was supposed to happen in this case with the power of the Lord Jesus, under the apostleship of Paul, by the way, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. To deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Once again, let's notice what's not said. What's not said about the immoral man. Notice. He is not said to be a brother or a believer or a saint. Simply him who has so committed this. Such a one. It's always the language Paul uses about this particular person. Right. So now since he's the apostle now, and that's the first generation, and he was there to build up the church and spread the gospel throughout the known world in the Roman Empire, he says, even when I'm not with you, and I won't be with you, when you gather as an assembly, I'm there with you in spirit. And by the power given to Paul by the Lord Jesus, he says this one is to be delivered to Satan as if Paul were there. Because it's only Paul's authority that could, that could, they, that could allow this to happen. To deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul is the one, and may I add the only one, with the authority to judge this man. Why? Because he's the apostle. He's the father of this church. He had the authority to do it. And, and more generally, or more, more, the, the, the authority to deliver somebody to Satan, you know, there's, a, there's people that want to do this today. You know, they think that, well, we have the power to deliver somebody to Satan. No, we don't. This was given to the apostles only. You won't find anywhere else other than the apostles where, this was the, where, they're, where they're delivering one over to Satan. In fact, even, even uh, Ananias and Sapphira, right? They, they dropped dead on the spot. Well, don't look for that to happen today. 
Why? Because that was the apostle Peter who was, was given that power to make a lesson that the church would never forget. But that power doesn't go down the halls of history so that, you know, today people can run around and say, I know you're going to drop dead because you didn't put enough in the offering. You know, that there's probably some minister out there who's saying that right now, but in any event, we don't have that power. All right, we're not, no apostles, we're in the first generation of the church only. There are no apostles today. They were the ones that had the authority to deliver someone to Satan. For example, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19. Keep this in mind because this chapter will also tell us what we can do, what we are to do, what we are instructed to do. So keep an eye out for that. But notice 1 Timothy 1.19. 1 Timothy 1.19. Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to the faith. Among these, Ahimaeus and Alexander... Notice, whom I have handed over to Satan. There it is again. And I, and I can't find any other place where that's said other than in, the, in these letters of, of Paul. He has the authority to do it. We don't. He said, I have handed Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan. Why? Notice why. So that they will be taught not to blaspheme. That they will be what? Taught. Learn the lesson is what he's saying. Even under the most... Um, horrible kind of the discipline, turning a man over to Satan. It wasn't as if that you're, there's no hope for you. No, there's a purpose. Right here he says, they will be taught not to blaspheme. Paul taught, teaches them through this discipline of hand, being handed over to Satan to not to blaspheme. Now, blaspheming is also a very serious situation. You know, it is saying things about God that aren't true, particularly negative things about God, all right, or about Jesus Christ. Imagine if somebody came in here and started talking to people saying, you know, Jesus Christ really isn't God, right? That's, that's blaspheming. Would we stand for that? I hope we wouldn't. I hope we would confront them and say, listen, here's what the Bible says about that. And then if they don't change, confront them again. But if they're still going around doing that, then there is a time at which we're going to have to say, no more, you're out of here. And it's something that everybody, we do that as an assembly. You know, a lot of people think, well, that's just the pastor. Well, we're the leaders, so we should lead it. The elders and the pastor should lead the effort, but everybody should be on board. There's safety in numbers, if I may put it that way. Okay. So there's a lesson here. There's a lesson. What is it? Through intense suffering in Satan's world, they would learn that lesson. Whatever it is. In this case, it was not to blaspheme. In the case of the man in 1 Corinthians 5, they, that he would understand how grievous and horrible what he was doing was, and he would turn away from it. Right? Learn the lesson. Learn the lesson as a congregation that you can't put up with that, that you can't laugh it off. You should be in a state of mourning when this is happening in your congregation. Learn the lesson. And I think Paul had a similar purpose in mind when he was said, delivering the immoral man in chapter 5 to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, the destruction of the flesh in 1 Corinthians 5 could refer to physical death. It's not certain that it does not. 
However, more likely, it is pointing to physical illness and suffering. Physical illness and suffering so that that man would no longer have any confidence in the flesh. To put it very simply, physical suffering for spiritual deliverance. Physical suffering for a purpose, for spiritual deliverance. Deliver one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Physical suffering for spiritual deliverance. We see this also in 1 Peter. Please turn to 1 Peter 4, where we see the same principle. It's in a little different context, but the principle is the same. 1 Peter 4, 1 to 2. Let me interject again at this point that this demonstrates the love of God for the church, okay? the family. After all, shouldn't a father in the family, if there's somebody in the family who is rebellious, who is causing all kinds of difficulty in the family, who is demonstrating behavior that could lead to the younger people, let's say, in that family, the younger kids, to say, well, I guess it's okay. Dad didn't do anything about it, so I guess that's fine. I'm going to do the same thing. So, so would a father who's taking responsibility, his role in the family, would he put up with that? Absolutely not. No, it would be addressed one way or the other. And, uh, and if need be, and you know, I've seen this in my own family, not, not my immediate family, but when I, the growing up family, you know, with my father and mother, it happened the same thing. There was a point at which, I'm not going to get any details, where one member of the family was just out, to, out rebellious and all kinds of other activity. And at some point it was like, you know what? You've got to leave. You've got to leave. You get a job, go into the military, but you can't be doing this in this household. In any event, what does Peter say about this principle of spiritual, physical suffering for spiritual deliverance? 1 Peter 4.1 Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, to suffer in the flesh. What's the principle? Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Let me say that again. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This does not mean that they never sin again. It just means that they, that they understand how wicked sin is and they've turned away from the lusts of the flesh. They have put to death the deeds of the body through the power of the Spirit. They're still going to commit sins, but they're not, you know, as Paul says in chapter 6, they're not no longer presenting the members of their body to sin. You see, saying, hey, I want to come back under your leadership flesh. They're not going to do that anymore. They're going to present their, the members of their body to God as those who are alive from the dead. Again, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. You see the pivot? You see the pivot? You're living for the lusts of the flesh. You go through suffering. And then you come out and you start to live for the will of God. That's one of, not the only, but that's one of the purposes of suffering in our lives. Is for that to happen. And it does happen. Unless somebody is so rebellious and arrogant that that, even that won't get through to them. And there are people like that. But God knows, you know, the kind of suffering he should bring in our lives in order for us best to be in a position of turning away from that lifestyle. All right. So this is the situation in Corinth. And Paul, the apostle, turned this one over to Satan as a last resort. A last resort. 
thinking that perhaps this offender would stop living for the lusts of the flesh and begin to live for the will of God. All right, let's continue in 1 Corinthians 5. Anytime we go somewhere other than 1 Corinthians 5, just realize we're going to go back. Okay, so if you have the holy ribbon or you have more than one finger, you can put one there and you turn, you know, however that goes, however you do that. Sometimes when I'm studying, I've got to do like five, four fingers. You know, I've got to like, okay, here's where I am. This is what I'm looking at right now. Oh, that refers to something back here. And let's go to Genesis. So it kind of looks like that for a little while. So you can do it. You can be in 1 Corinthians 5 and then branch out to where we need to go. 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 6 now. Your boasting is not good. Notice again, who's this focus on? The congregation. He's teaching them. He's concerned about them. He's giving them principles, not the man. He's already dealt with the man, right? He said, I've decided to deliver that one. Not I've decided, but to deliver that one to Satan. Boom, that's it. Okay. Now he's back to the people and he's saying, whoa, you know, you guys really don't get it when it comes to this kind of behavior in the congregation. You're boasting. Think about it. They were boasting about it. They were both. A man had his father's wife. And they were boasting about it. Hey, guess what's going on in our congregation? It might also have been the kind of thing where they were like, the pagans, as you know, at the time, I told you this, was where their, their religions brought sex in, put it, put, it, put it nicely, okay? So they may be thinking, hey, you know what? We, we believe in Christ. We believe that he paid for our sins. But you know what? We can do that same stuff that you do. They were boasting in the fact that a man had his father's wife. It's not good. Here's the mindset. Do you not know that a little leaven, leaven was very tiny in relation to the lump of dough. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. You leave that in there and everything about the congregation will be affected. Stand to be ruined as a matter of fact. You know, it's like cancer in the body, right? You start out a little, but then it grows, right? What are we supposed to do? As soon as we find it, we deal with it. Or the doctor does, the oncologist does. Why? Because it can harm the entire body. But, but what he's saying is you need to see these kind of flagrantly sinful lifestyles going on in front of you. The same way you would see cancer in your body. The same way you would not want a, just a speck of leaven in that, in that lump to, to, to ruin it. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are, in fact, unleavened. We've been purified, we've been sanctified by the blood of Christ. For Christ, our Passover, He's our Passover. He was the Lamb that was slain for us. Also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. Now, in context, we're going to see that this is reflecting back on the book of Exodus, where the Lord set up the Passover feast. But that wasn't the feast that we're talking about, because... He's al- think about it, he's already been sacrificed, right? Passover already happened. Then in the, in the calendar, um, the Jewish calendar, what happened the very next day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Purity, okay? God wants his people to be a holy people now. So that's the feast he was talking about. Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, He's got a spiritual principle here. He's not saying them to go back to the Mosaic law and the feasts of of the Jewish people. He's using this as to bring forth a principle. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, 
Not with old leaven. What is that? The leaven of malice and wickedness. Don't allow that to be in the family when you're celebrating the feast. Instead, with unleavened bread. What is that? Sincerity, purity, and truth. Get rid of the wickedness so that you can remain a congregation based on sincerity and truth. The real deal, if you want to put it that way. Because people are always observing. People are always observing what's going on with the family of God. Now, what is it about Christians that's different from the world? That's what, the, that's what they want to know. That's what they're drawn to. Hopefully, those who are, you know, realize there's a God and want to find out more will be drawn to churches who live according to the Word of God. I couldn't put it any more simply than that. And that's what he's saying here. Unleavened bread, sincerity and truth. Again, leaven in the Bible refers to evil and impurity. So yes, I know, it's always been an issue. Well, you know, leaven is actually good if you want to make a cake. I know, I know. But in the Bible, leaven is evil and impurity. Okay, That's what it refers to. For example... When you hear me say that, keep your finger of the holy ribbon on 1 Corinthians 5. But please turn to Galatians 5, 7. Galatians 5, 7. Paul uses the same analogy here. Talking about something different, but it's the same evil and impurity. That's what it has in common. In the, in the case of Galatians chapter 5, he's not talking about flagrant sinning lifestyles. Rather, he's talking about something worse, which is legalism. Legalism is something. It's funny because um, you know, we've had legalistic people coming and all that. But you know what the most effective medicine for a legalist is? It's, it's grace and truth. Exactly. It is when you preach the truth, when you preach the grace of God, and you preach that not to boast in men, and that, that we've been freed from the bondage of the law, and we give examples about that, and then they're shocked, and they leave. That's, what, that's most of the time how you deal with legalistic person. In any event, Galatians 5, 7 to 10. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The truth is the gospel, justification by faith. And these who were entering the congregation were teaching that they had to keep the Mosaic law in order to remain in the good graces of God. That's what they were teaching. And he said, who is this? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from God, the Lord, the one who calls you. There it is again, verse 9. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. There's something about legalism that once somebody is going in that direction, there's, I don't know whether it's through fear or guilt or arrogance, but then other people are like, oh, wow, we've got to be that way now. I've seen this happen in congregations. Where they, at one point they believed in the gospel of grace, faith alone in Christ. But then somebody comes along and starts adding conditions, legalistic conditions on the front end. Like repenting of all your sins and surrendering everything to God and so forth. They put that there. And all of a sudden, people are like, oh, gee, maybe, ooh, maybe I wasn't saved. Maybe i got to do that. There's, that's dangerous. And so he's saying the same thing here. Get rid of the leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you and the Lord, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. I know you're going to get it. But notice, the one who's disturbing you, the leaven, will bear his judgment, whoever he is. 
And again, 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8 draws on the Passover feast. If you want to read more about that, you can read all about that in Exodus 12 and 13. Okay, if you want to make a note to get more enrichment about what he's doing here in 1 Corinthians 5. And again, I mentioned this, but Passover was followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And even today, Orthodox Jews do this. They remove all the leaven from the house. They'll do it during Passover week. As a symbol of purity. So in any event, that's what he's hearkening back to. He's talking about the Jewish feast of unleavened bread where all the leaven was removed from the house. Since Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed at the cross, we're to walk in holiness. That's the missing part of Christianity in a lot of places. You know, yes, yes, our sins have been forgiven. But now we are to walk in holiness. Why? Because he's holy. We've been, we've been set free from the bondage of sin, all right, which leads to death, so that we could live unto the Lord. What is that? A life of holiness and love and all the things about who God is. That's the principle here. And by the way, sincerity and truth ought to describe worship. We ought to worship, as Jesus says in the, in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. Worship according to the truth of the, of the Word of God and according to the guidance of the Spirit. All right, 1 Corinthians 5.9. Go back there. 1 Corinthians 5.9. We'll wrap this up. Get ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I wrote to you in my letter. This was another letter. We don't have that letter. Don't freak out. If it was meant to be in the, in the canon of Scripture, it would be. In any event, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous in the world, or swindlers in the world, or idolaters in the world, because then you would have to go out of the world, because they're everywhere. But I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person. We're going to see more about this in a minute, what these are all about. Or covetous or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Who are we not to associate with? Well, every, not every church, but churches that are implementing these kinds of, uh, they always go after the sexual sins. Well, you, you can't associate anybody who's divorced, or divorced and remarried, or any people that are living together. Yes, there are all sins, and yes, they do cover one category. But what about the covetous? What about lovers of money? Are you going to do the same thing? If you're going to be consistent, you have to also deal with the covetous, the lovers of money, the idolater, the reviler, the drunkard, and the swindler. All of those kind of, we'll see more about who these are. You've got to do all of that, not just one. And again, the world is full of these people, immoral people, covetous, swindlers, idolaters. And that's no surprise, because they haven't been born again. They haven't been, they haven't been uh, indwelt by the Spirit. None of those things. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. There's no surprise. By the way, attitude towards the world, and, and yes, all of these kind of um, lifestyles, our job is to evangelize them, not to judge them. Write that down. This goes counter to the church today. 
There's so much going on in the church where they're looking at the evils of the world and saying, oh, look at that. You guys are so horrible. Oh, oh, oh. Well, you know what? You'll never run out of material if that's the way you want to go. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible says don't judge the people of the world. Evangelize them. Preach the good news of the gospel of Christ. The church should not pass judgment on unbelievers. The church should not pass judgment on unbelievers. Why? That's God's job. That's what he says here. He says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Verse 12. Do, not, do you not judge those who are within the church? Those who are outside, God judges, not us. In other words, we should make sure that our own house is in order. You know, can you imagine if, what, think about the witness destroyed when you have a church who's out there, you know, legalistically attacking the people in the world, attacking them. And then at the same time, they got the same kind of sinful lifestyles in their own church. What kind of a witness would that be to the world? No. We ought to make sure our own house is in order. Begin and end there. Notice the phrase, In verse 11, so-called brother. There's another indication that Paul wasn't really sure if if this one was a believer or not. Just like, he's always wondering about people that are in these lifestyles. Not that he knows one way or the other, but there's some doubt as to whether this person is a believer. There are some who will come among us, but they won't be of us. And then he lists these, these, these sins, sinful lifestyles, immoral person, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler. I want to make a point about this. These are flagrantly sinful lifestyles. Flagrantly sinful. In other words, they don't hide it. They're proud of it. Okay? And they're lifestyles. A lifestyle is what a person habitually does. Over and over and over and over again. So please, don't get the legalistic attitude that you catch somebody gossiping, and now we have to separate from them. Or you catch somebody who fell off the wagon and had, had a drink last Saturday when they're you know, alcoholic and they shouldn't. Oh, we've got to separate from you. Not at all. Lifestyle. Flagrantly. Openly. Proud of it. Boasting about it. What a person habitually does. That's what's being talked about here. It's so important to understand that. That, when active in the assembly, can cause permanent damage. Immoral refers to having sex outside of marriage. Covers a lot of different real estate, right? But sex outside of marriage is what, is what this word means. And yeah, that's convicting. But in any event, it's not the only thing, right? Certainly, if somebody lives a fragrant lifestyle... And what does that mean? Boasting about it. Hey, you know, I'm living with such a one now, and I got this great playboy lifestyle out there. It's like, um, listen, you know, we're confronting you with that. That's inconsistent, all right? Stop it, right? They, they keep doing it, you know? Because we are not to be the, the police, you know, the fruit inspectors. We're not supposed to be like, like the, like the uh, Pharisees were looking in when a couple were having sex. Whoa, you know, that's not us. The issue is flagrantly sinful lifestyle. One that's affecting the church and infecting the church. That's the principle. All right. Covetous very simply means greedy, a lover of money. So you got these churches, right? And they're going around and they're pointing out anybody who's, you know, had any sign of sinful sexual behavior. 
And at the same time, at the end, the pastor's up there saying, sow a seed, give me $500 and the Lord will bless you. Well, guess what? He's a lover of money. The Bible says the same thing. When was the last time, though, you saw a congregation separate and not associate with a preacher who was preaching the prosperity gospel? I haven't seen that happen. And yet the Bible says it's in the same category, lover of money. Idolater, I think pretty obvious, one who worships idols or particularly practices a false religion. And that's going on. Hopefully not too much, but there are people who want to associate with the church, but also on the side are practicing another religion. Reviler, someone who consistently, flagrantly uses malicious speech and spreads lies. That is the same kind of thing, lifestyle, that has to be dealt with. Uses malicious speech and spreads lies. There are some, there are some people in the church that are doing this all the time. See, it's a lifestyle. They too have to be dealt with, addressed, and if they don't stop, they, we ought to separate. We ought to not to associate. Drunkard is one who is, notice, habitually intoxicated. Not, not slip up, but habitually intoxicated, and then they're rebellion about it. Don't talk to me about that. Leave me alone. This is my lifestyle. Even, and this is in 1 Corinthians, they even turn up drunk in the, in the assembly. Can't do, you, can't, you can't allow that to happen. And then finally, a swindler is someone who cheats people out of their money or property. A thief. And I've met people who are proud about it, about how they put one over on a neighbor or the government or whatever, you know. But the Bible says those people you shouldn't associate with. All right. I hope you get the point. We're not, we are instructed not to associate or even eat with a person like that. Don't go out to lunch with them. Harsh, but remember the purpose, right? The purpose, first and foremost, is to make sure that the church is unleavened. To make sure that anything would damage or destroy the church is dealt with. And then secondarily, the person themselves, by going through whatever they go through, when the people aren't associating with them, hopefully will turn and learn the lesson, and then they'll be you know, reinstituted, as it were. Will be restored. Okay. So, and again, one more time, this does not refer to a believer who occasionally lapses. It does not. Because you want to know something? If it did, this building would be empty. Empty. All right. Just, just make sure you understand it's flagrantly public, sinful lifestyle. We're all tempted in certain areas, and sometimes we give in to the temptation. And, and I want you to just, I just want to notice one other thing, and I mentioned this already. The assembly as a whole is expected to not associate with such a person. In other words, you don't say, oh, those mean elders, I know what they did to you, but I'm more compassionate than them. So I'm going to like bring you on the side, and, you know, and, and then eventually I'm going to be on your side, and we're going to all talk about how wicked and evil and mean the elders are in the church. No, all of us are supposed to be a part of this, all of us. By the way, if you want to read about it in the interest of time, I'm going to just tell you, don't turn there because I'm going to... Galatians 6.1 gives different instructions by a person, a believer, who's caught in one trespass. Okay, you can go there if you want. But basically, if anyone is caught in any one trespass, you who are spiritual doesn't say never associated with it. It says this, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. That ought to be our attitude about brother or sister in Christ who commits a transgression that they're caught in. All right? 
it's to be understood that we are to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And by the way, in closing, I want to mention that um, there are other passages um, that also talk about the conditions under which we should not associate. Um, just, just write these down because I've got to get to the Lord's Supper here. We do. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 15, okay, where he says, people that are not willing to work, not people who are unemployed, but people who are not willing to work. I don't need to work. I'm going to mooch off the church. They're so gracious and generous. I'm not going to work. I'm going to eat somebody else's bread. We're not to associate with a person like that. Titus 3, 9 to 11 is the last one. People that are into controversies, always causing controversy within the church. Strife and disputes. It says reject such a one after a first and second warning. Warn them a couple of times, then don't associate with them. Again, mindset. This gets simple, obvious, when we see ourselves as a family. As we grow together in the Lord and in his word, this will become second nature to take swift action against anything or anyone who threatens to harm our family. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that we are able to confront some difficult principles and remain in the understanding that this is all stems from your love for the body of Christ, for the church. And as we now enter into the Lord's Supper together, Father, let's bring that with us and see how your love is expressed and how Jesus Christ shares the same love as you do and explains why he went to the cross for us. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. At this time, I do invite the ushers, who are ushers today, to come forward and to pass out the communion elements. Every time we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we're always to begin, and we think about this all the time, but particularly when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, to make sure we see the body of Christ for what it is. So we see the congregation as one body and treat each other that way. And that's a time for examination to make sure that we're on that wavelength. That's important. Today, I'm going to read from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. There's a lot more in those verses about Christ and his church than there is about husbands and wives. He's saying, Christ loved the church. Christ gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, set her apart, and that he might present her as blameless and holy. That's the principle. That's the reason why Christ died. Ultimately, so that he would present the church holy and blameless in all her glory, no spot or wrinkle, no leaven. And at the end of the in chapter, and uh, rather in verses 29 and 30, he says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. He nourishes and cherishes it. That's his attitude towards the church. 
he will not stand for anything or anyone who will destroy the church. Why? Because he nourishes it and cherishes it. Because why? We're members of his body. That's how we should see ourselves, especially at the time at which we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. How precious the church is to our Lord. He loves the church so much that he gave himself up on the cross for her, as well as everybody else. He's the savior of all men, especially believers. He cleansed her by the washing of the water and the word so that in the future he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Notice it's tied to his death on the cross, and there's a future where he will present the church in all her glory. That's why the Lord protects his body ferociously. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. He loved us and gave himself up for us. That's the message of the Lord's Supper. We ought to keep in mind his death until he comes. God the Father in Romans 8.32 did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. And now that has happened, how will he not also with Christ, we're in him and he's in us, how will he not also with Christ freely give us all things? That's what his heartbeat is for the church. He wants only good things for the church. Now we are members of his body. He will never withhold any good thing from us. That is the death. That is the uh, outcome of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That as members of his body now, having God not sparing his own son, now he will give us all things freely now that we are members of his body. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Such that if there's anybody here who has never celebrated the Lord's Supper before, if there's someone who's come this morning wondering about who God is and wanting to know about that and hearing about the good news that he died for our sins, that they would have his death proclaimed to them by the participation that we have in the Lord's Supper together. We are to remember him. We are to remember and proclaim his death until he comes. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for instituting your son's supper for us to gather together on a regular basis and celebrate, understanding that it's our time to see the body of Christ for what it is, our time to bring into remembrance our Lord and Savior and what he did for us on the cross, and to proclaim his death until he comes back for us in the rapture. And we also pray this morning, Father, that we would have the courage to stand up and protect the church when need be, 
but also to understand that we ought to restore an erring believer as just as we would not want to be tempted. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our next service will be Thursday at 7 o'clock where we will continue our Bible study on the subject of prayer. I want to mention our giving policy, and that is that we don't, we don't collect in the, at, at, during services. We don't tithe, okay? We, we, we follow the principles in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which is that freely receive, freely give. When you, have, when you know that the Lord has blessed you in some way financially, and it's your choice that you want to support a ministry that preaches God's word, then if, if you freely do it, not under compulsion, because God wants you to do it happily. And so that's, what we, that's why we don't pass the plate. We don't have tithing, none of that. Okay, no pledges. Just that when, the, when, the, when you have that motivation, then you, you give. And we have a box in the back if you want to do it that way. We also have a website where you can pay online. Okay, donate online. Okay, one other thing. Um, if you have any questions today about the message, the gospel, or anything else, I do invite you to come speak with me after service. I'll be sitting down over there with the Bible, and we can have a good conversation. And just remember the good news. The good news is simple. That Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried. On the third day, he was, risen, he was raised from the dead by his Father. Whoever simply believes that good news about Christ takes God at his word. Very simple. child will take people at, at their word because they trust them. That's the same principle. We take God at his word that his son was made flesh, died on the cross, was buried, and was raised from the dead. We hear that message and believe it, taking God at his word. At that instant, we're born again, we are given eternal life, and we are declared righteous forever in God's eyes. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, one more, one more prayer to close. Father, we thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. We thank you, Father, that you allow us in this country to gather together freely without obvious persecution. And we would ask, Father, now that you would, you would motivate us to speak boldly to the unbelievers who need to hear this good news. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.